Welcome back to another episode of Beethoven Walks Into a Bar, where today we are talking about those tunes that you just can't get out of your head. My name is Jason Sieber. I am the associate conductor of the Kansas City Symphony. I'm Mike Gordon, principal flute of the Kansas City Symphony. And I'm Stephanie Brimhall, education manager. Now, love them or hate them, everyone experiences the occasional earworm every now and then. Off the top of my head, I can think of several tunes that have easily become stuck in my brain over the years. And, you know, normally it's whatever concert we are working on that week. I do, if it's Beethoven 5 or Brahms 1, no matter what the piece is, it'll be in my head nonstop, in the car on the way home, when I get home and I'm making dinner with my wife and I'm singing it or humming it over and over and over again. But there are definitely a few earworms, I think, that each of us has stuck in our head on a regular basis, or it just keeps coming back like a recurring nightmare, haunting our everyday <laughs> lives. I know a few of my favorites, uh, or least favorites, depending on how you look at it, is the second movement of Shostakovich's Fifth Symphony. Mahler, Symphony Number no. 5, like literally the entire piece from the opening <laughs> trumpet call through the beautiful adagetto. It's one of my favorite pieces of music, so that's probably why it's stuck in my head a lot. And from the pop world... Don't Stop Believing by Journey. If that song comes on at a wedding or on the radio or anything that I'm listening to, then it's stuck in my head for like literally the next week. How about you guys? Is that your go-to karaoke jam? Uh, it's way too high for karaoke. So, But inevitably, someone always sings it and usually horribly at karaoke. Yes. So if that happens, it's stuck in my head as well. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, mine, I, I have several. And one of mine is... I don't know that I can explain why this is in my head, but if I have a song in my head, 90% of the time, it is the Overture to Candide. How weird is that? That's a good one. <laughs> it's That's very a great good. Piece. I love it, but it's uh, it, it will just come out of nowhere and, and I'll find myself whistling it or like doing the fingerings, like the clarinet fingerings. I'll just find myself doing that for no apparent reason. parents who are listening right now are going to kill me for this but i often have baby shark in my head because you can't baby shark do, 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 right yeah no yes you're you're both looking at me like oh you loathe me <laughs> and then of course there is not one person on earth that has not had let it go from frozen in their head oh I just got that out of my head from Christmas. It's April now, and now it's going to be stuck in there for the next week. That is definitely in your work. Let it go. Oh, my God. All right. Well, I have a really nerdy earworm, actually. So I've been working uh, on and off for a while on the a transcription of the jig from the second Bach cello suite. Thank you. 
yeah. So it just gets stuck in my head. And when I'm practicing it, it gets stuck in my wife's head and then she wants to kill me. Um, and I should also say with regards to the aforementioned baby shark, I was probably the last person on planet earth to become aware of what this was. And I went to Australia to visit my in-laws and one of my eight nephews was singing, and I couldn't make out what he was saying because, you know, he's sort of doing it in baby talking. I was like, what the heck are you singing over and over again? And finally, somebody showed me the YouTube video, <laughs> and my life was forever changed. But if you really, really want to see that song at its best, there is at least one or maybe more than one heavy metal uh, oh. version Ooh, of that. Nice. The death metal version of Baby Shark is by far the best thing on yeah, the internet. It's for actually sure. good. <laughs> well, actually, my nephews and niece are way too old for Baby Shark, so I am the last person on planet Earth that actually doesn't know it. So maybe Wait, I'll start with the heavy metal are version. You, are you saying I'm you don't serious. know don't, Baby Shark? I don't. I don't know Baby Shark, Jason. <laughs> that can be your recommended listening. <laughs> this week but uh, i will listen to it lest we make an entire podcast delving the depths of uh baby shark mm. what what do all of these little earworms have in common i mean whether it's classical music pop music film music whatever kind of music we all uh are familiar with some of these little tunes or motifs or fragments that get stuck in our head but what do they have in common is it tempo is it the lyrics that go with them? Is it the length of them? Well, I think up until Jason said the adagietto from Mahler 5. Yeah, right. That's a I, long worm. That's, that's <laughs> one long worm. <laughs> it's but, not the whole thing. It's just the main <laughs> tune. It's a beautiful melody. It is beautiful. But I before uh, that aside, I feel like all of these are pretty up-tempo. I mean, you True. know, they you True. can tap your foot along with them, and that that's certainly something that I think aids in getting something stuck in your head. Yeah, absolutely. Um, they're all catchy tunes. I mean, usually the tune itself is really simple. It's a simple melody. Maybe it has a lot of repetition. There's so many different things, I feel like, that can make a tune catchy. So I actually am super intrigued by this idea of the earworm and what makes music get stuck in our head uh, that I actually, I did quite a bit of research about this. And uh, fair warning, Jason, I think this would make an excellent um, educational concert. Like talking about all the ways that these themes get stuck in your head and why. So more on that next year. But I did some research and there are actual scientific facts that go along with why certain melodies are more likely to get stuck in your head than others. Nerd alert, nerd alert, and nerd alert, nerd alert. <laughs> so we keep calling it, we keep calling it the earworm, but there's actually a scientific term for it, and it's called involuntary musical imagery. Nerd Ooh. alert. That has a real ring to it. But what that means, it's when a tune comes into your mind and it stays there without you having any conscious control over it. So wow. something pops in your head and there's no, you can't pinpoint why it's in there. That's what the the scientific version or definition of an earworm is. So there are different things that can cause it. The first one I think that's the most common reason is just exposure to the song. So if you've got kids at home, you've heard Baby Shark and so being exposed to Baby Shark, therefore, just plants it in your brain, and it's going to get stuck in your head. So you could hear, like Jason with Don't Stop Believing," right? You hear it on the radio, 
And then an hour later, you might be cleaning up the kitchen and it's in your head. So it's it's the exposure to the song. But that probably happens to you guys when you play play concerts too, right? I mean, you're practicing something, you've been working on stuff and you find yourself humming it. Yeah, like I said, if it's, um, if it's whatever we're playing that week, uh, repertoire wise, that's usually what's stuck in my head the most. And like, I just can't get it out. Sometimes that's a good thing. If it's a good week of repertoire, other times it can be a little frustrating. Uh, but yeah, usually it's just whatever we're currently working on. I think the worst though is when I'm programming um, for Christmas Festival. And even though Christmas Festival doesn't happen until December, I'm usually coming up with that program in like June. And so my wife, speaking of um, spouses wanting to kill each other, my wife really gets sick of me humming nonstop Christmas tunes in the month of June as I listen to many, many different arrangements of holiday magic. That's awesome. You don't always get stuck in my head during the holidays is when we play uh, stuff from Home Alone, especially somewhere mm. in my memory. And all oh, I can think yes. of is somewhere in my memory. It's just so oh, good. It out. Well, lucky for you, Mike, we're playing that entire film again next season, right before Christmas time. So I'll make sure that we put some of the music from Home Alone on Christmas Festival. And then it'll, if it's still. In your ear, we want to make sure it doesn't leave, so we'll make sure we play the entire film for you <laughs> I think and for I all of our fans. I think I forgot to tell you, I'm actually doing a seminar overseas on oh. traditional Hanukkah music uh, <laughs> oh, at that time okay. next year, so I won't well, be available. Be but thanks for thinking of me. You know, Absolutely, my pleasure. Speaking of Christmas time, so the, the, the symphony here in Kansas City, we play for the Kansas City Ballet. So obviously around Christmas time, we're playing for the Nutcracker. And Mike, maybe you can speak to this, but when you play, what, 26, 39, 140, I don't know how many Nutcracker services there are. There seem like a lot. Is that just an automatic, like, singing Nutcracker melodies all the way until, like, August? Uh, Well, I have a remedy for that, which is that as soon as I'm done playing the Nutcracker and I change into my street clothes and I get in my car, I will very often just turn on something completely different like eminem or i don't know lincoln park just death metal baby shark death metal baby shark just to get it out of my head (laughs) or let it go let it go we'll get you know i actually had a friend once that said no matter what's stuck in your head all you have to do is hum the theme from jurassic park by john williams interesting and that'll then get stuck in your head and that's much better than 99 percent of earworms by the way, that's another film we are playing next season at the Kansas City Symphony. I can't wait. It's one of my favorite John Williams scores. But if there are many worse things that can get stuck in your head than the beautiful theme to Jurassic Park. So next time one of these gets stuck in your head, just think a little bum, 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 And then that'll be stuck in your head. Oh, so good. All right. So exposure to the song is one way that it gets stuck in your head. But there's um, there are a few other ways. And primary is your memory being triggered by returning to a certain place or reading a word or a phrase that's associated with that, that music or, you know, a certain smell or something um, environmentally that's going to trigger you to think about it. And you may not really notice that that's what's happening, but you might find yourself later humming something. And isn't that an amazing thing about music? I've always 
thought about that, about how one of our senses triggers a memory in another part of our brain. You know, you, you like when you walk into your elementary school and you haven't been there for 20, 30, or in Mike's case, like 60 years. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, it's like you smell that cafeteria food again, and you yes. can picture your friends at the age of like eight or nine in your classroom. Or better yet, you hear a tune from your childhood come on the radio, um, whether it's, you know, Def Leppard or Chicago or Guns N' Roses or something like that. Those are the, the, the bands I grew up with. But you hear a song that you haven't heard in a while, and not only does it become an earworm possibly, but it recreates those memories for you of your childhood. I've always thought that's super cool. Do you know that's actually interesting you say that? Because earlier I said that the overture to Candide is what I find playing in my head all the time. But you know what's funny is it's never the orchestral version. It's always the wind ensemble version. Really? And I don't know, isn't that weird? And it's, I've played both a lot, but I've probably played the orchestral version more, but maybe it's because when I first learned it, it was the wind ensemble version. And that's what my brain is going back to. It's weird. So in the wind ensemble version, you're a clarinetist. Do the clarinets have the nasty violin licks near the oh, very yeah. beginning of the overture then? Oh, oh yeah. That's probably why it's stuck in your mind then. You're probably having nightmares of those <laughs> is, really difficult clarinet Is it PTSD? Licks. Is that what I'm going through right now? <laughs> I think <laughs> it might be. I, I have one like that. Uh, the uh, Tchaikovsky uh, Fourth Symphony, the last movement has this theme, bum 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 bum, but in the in the rest the string goes the strings go oh ee, oh ee, oh, and the first <laughs> time I played that we just played the last movement at Rhode Island All State Orchestra I would have been maybe in junior high or early high school and it's a really hard piece uh, for young kids and there wasn't much time to rehearse and it sounded really really bad even at that time in my life when I was you know just a young musician getting started I recognized that it sounded bad and every time I hear that piece to this day it takes me immediately back to Rhode Island Allstate, rehearsing in some uh, meeting room at the Providence Journal building, and I hear, every time it does it, Berlin Philharmonic could be playing it. That's what I would imagine in my head. Now, see, that's weird, because I would think that with, with that particular melody and that piece, that you would hear more the cool flute part that he wrote when the strings play the, the boring theme that you're not boring, repetitive theme <laughs> that you're talking about earlier, where you play, because oh that's when it actually, when that theme actually becomes interesting is when he adds that cool little lick for the flute in the, in the 16th notes, that little solo. It's true. That is, that's actually one of the hardest solos and kind of thankless because it's really just decoration on this melody. But you know, everybody, mm. da, 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 and I'm like, you know, and it's really hard to figure out when to play it. And it's, oh, it's thank God you sound a lot better when you're playing it than you do well, when you're singing it. That's the reason I play the flute and I don't sing for a living. Poor nice. Mike. That's so sad. I'm so sorry for you. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we've already talked about some of the things that this, some of the reasons why earworms become earworms. We mentioned repetition. Yeah, things get stuck in your head because you've heard them several times, and it's it's easy for our brain to kind of fill in the blank, right? But I think too, repetition. So it's how many times you hear it, but also how repetitive the melody actually is. Mm -hmm. So if you take something like Beethoven Five, right? 
Yeah. Da, 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 da. Yeah. Um, and that just happens over and over and over again. It's very easy to get that little, just little snippet stuck in your head because it's very easy for your brain to predict where it's going and finish the phrase. Yeah, Beethoven was a master of using little motifs, little short rhythmic cells, as we call them. Um, and so he builds that entire first movement just on four notes over and over again. Or in his seventh symphony, that rhythm becomes relentless. So something that, you know, it's not just a repetition of, of a melody. Perhaps it could be a repetition of a rhythm that causes something to get stuck in our heads. It could be that the, the simplicity of the melody or the rhythm, the simpler it is, uh, the more it's going to probably stick in our heads, right? Baby shark, do 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 do. Does it get any simpler than that? You know, I said I haven't heard Baby Shark, but by the end of this episode, I have a feeling I'm going to know Baby Shark really, really well. <laughs> okay, then we'll change it up because maybe this is more, um, more your speed. Do you remember Barney? The, oh God, the show Barney. Do you remember that? You're not going to sing that song, are you? I love you. You oh, love man. me, right? <laughs> oh, I have to tell you that that's, that song drove me so crazy that when I was uh, teaching in Ohio, I taught elementary strings and high school orchestra, and there was a song in the Essential Elements book that we were working out of, um, and I think it was just This Old Man, because that, that's the tune that it's based on. When we would get to that song every year, because this was you know fifth graders, I think, so they were too old for Barney. So we would, as a class, in protest, skip over that song when we would get to it, probably so that it wouldn't become the earworm that it's <laughs> meant to be. So Fair enough. One of the things that's really interesting as musicians, too, is sometimes we use earworms to help us uh, remember something. I mean, we all do this, of course, in different contexts, like we have the the alphabet song, uh, but as musicians, uh, when we're learning intervals, sometimes uh, to remember, you know, what what's a major third, what's a minor third sound like, what's a fourth or a fifth sound like, we'll pick a song that maybe starts with that interval, like like Beethoven five, for instance, bum, 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 is a major third, or uh, there's a place for us. It starts with a seventh, helps us remember that. So. Um, we actually sometimes are tortured by these earworms, but a lot of times they're useful and they help us remember things. No, that's true. I always remember uh, a sixth from the NBC jingle. Right, that's a good one. NBC. Do you know a little bit of musical trivia about that? Do you know why that's the NBC theme song? No. Ba, ba, ba. Any idea? I'll tell you. <laughs> I went on the NBC Studios tour with my students, speaking of students, back when I was teaching high school. And they actually have an entire room dedicated to this. The uh, the station NBC used to be owned by General Electric Company, and those were the notes G E C. Wow. And when they were no longer owned by General Electric Company, they just decided to keep that as their call signal. And now that's stuck in your head. You're welcome. Wow. That's good knowledge, though. That. Awesome. Very I'm cool. Cliff Clavin. Just <laughs> a lot of meaningless facts. That's what's in my head. No, that's good. All right, so. We have, let's see, repetition and the simplicity of the the music, but also uh, certain things can get stuck in your head because they have some kind of rhythmic interest. So unusual rhythms, rhythms you wouldn't necessarily expect to hear can get get stuck in your head more easily than others. For example, um, 
Bernstein's West Side Story, the America, with those um, the kind of the the mixed meter stuff. Like it's it's not what you would expect, but once it gets stuck in your head, it's you want to hear it over and over again. It's interesting. Yeah, Dave Brubeck's Take Five is another perfect example of that. You know, I I wonder if that's also one of the reasons that I keep going back to the overture to Candide, but is is in my head a lot is that that center section that has the, you know, the one two one two one two three. It it yeah. it it's just it's different and it's interesting and my brain likes to play that over and over again. So another thing that makes a melody really stick in your head is if it uses unusual intervals. So we were talking about musicians using those different melodies to remember different intervals. Think, let's see, uh, Harry Potter. Do, 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 right? It might get stuck in your head because you're really not necessarily expecting where it's going to go. Or the ever popular, uh, this was very popular in my marching band days. <laughs> When the tuba section would play "Smoke on the Water," wow, right? Bum, 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 dun, 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 dun. Right? Yes. Oh yeah, nice. There's nothing like you know, fourteen tubas playing "Smoke on the Water." It's you know, that's hashtag Texas Marching Band. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, uh, the last thing on on my list of things that make uh, a melody stick in your head is if it has a predictable shape. So kind of similar to the repetition when your your brain can finish the sentence as it were you know if it's expecting what's coming a predictable shape like it has kind of a good rise and fall um a great example is maroon five's uh, moves like jagger which my kids love on just dance uh they love that song <laughs> but do 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 yeah it's just, yeah. it's, it's catchy. It, it sticks with you. Stephanie, I'm glad that your singing is a lot better than Mike's because I've under I've uh, been able to identify every melody that you're singing so far. Oh. So keep it up. Thank you. <laughs> wow. Mike, not so much, but your singing is spot on. Well, you, listen, you could have a career just singing earworms. We have already established that Stephanie has a, a greater grasp of certainly pop music than Mike oh, yeah, does. yeah, that's right. That's but, right. When we did that one hit wonders <laughs> quiz, Mike was not exactly stellar at the uh, pop category. I really think when I sang sang the uh, Bach jig, uh, I I really thought I I pulled that off. Okay, yeah. keep telling yourself that. All right. <laughs> well, you know there are definitely earworms in pop music, but there are many classical ones, of course, as well. And we've already mentioned a few of the ones that are reoccurring nightmares or dreams, depending on how you look at it, for each of us. But, you know, I think that a lot of the typical classical earworms do fit into these um, characteristics and categories that you're talking about, Stephanie. Beethoven 5, it's a use of repetition, like I already said. It's a simple rhythm. It's just four notes. And, of course, it's a faster tempo. Um, Another example would be Mozart's Marriage of Figaro Overture.
once again, fast tempo, predictable shape with the melody, uh, usually moving in scalar motion. And then, of course, you have uh, Wagner's Ride of the Valkyries. That melody has very unusual intervals, but yet at the same time, a predictable shape. Can I tell a quick, really funny story about Mozart, Marriage of Figaro, and its earworminess? Only you if sing? you sing it. <laughs> <laughs> I will sing it. Okay, good. Allow me to set up the story. Please. So if if any of you have ever seen uh, the original, not the new, not the new, I'm sorry, Johnny Depp, but the original uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory yes, with Gene yes. Wilder, there's a scene where they're going down this sort of infinity tunnel that narrows to a very small door and they have to key in a code to get through the door and the code is entered on a little piano keyboard. Mm-hmm. And and Willy Wonka plays and then Wow. And then the Mike, mother that was good. Oh thank you. See? I, 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 it, it just I has to be a it. fast hard melody and then you can nail yeah, it. That then was great. I can do it. Well that's what I do for a living. It's fast hard melodies. <laughs> um so so the mother, I forget which kid's mother it was, um, says, Oh, Rachmaninoff. <laughs> yes, she does. And, and so I'm watching the movie uh, with my wife one time, and you know she's—I've mentioned a few times over the course of the podcast that she didn't have much background in classical music. So she was so proud of herself when we were watching the movie. She stopped it. She said, "I know what this is. Don't say what it is." And she says, "It's Rachmaninoff." You know, before the woman said, and I was like, "Oh gosh, I hate to disappoint you. It's not Rachmaninoff. It's Mozart." <laughs> You know, one of my favorite things is Mike's New York accents. I love, I love Mike's New York accents. They are good. They are definitely good. <laughs> Better than my singing? Yes. Uh, it's, uh, your singing is a close second. Now that you uh, just showed that you could sing the beginning of the Rachmaninoff Marriage of Figaro Overture, you're doing much better. Oh. Um, excuse me, Mozart, Marriage of Figaro yeah. Overture. Oh, thank you, Jason. <laughs> Let's not confuse everyone. Mike, Mike, I feel like uh, we we asked you in preparation for this podcast today to come up with um, some solutions for how to get rid of the earworms that we don't want. What are some ways that if something's stuck in your head, I already mentioned Jurassic Park as a way of getting it out of your head, but what are some other ways you can get an earworm out of your head if it's just stuck there and refuses to go away. Well, that's true. And I already mentioned uh, after Nutcrackers uh, what I'll listen to in my car. But, you know, this happens even just practicing at home. You know, you'll be working on something over and over again and you just can't get it out of your head. So so if I'm playing, you know, I'll, I'll just stop what I'm doing and I'll play something completely different uh, for a few minutes or I'll put on some other type of music Usually loud. I find loud helps. <laughs> Death metal baby shark. Death metal Again, baby shark. That's going to be everyone's cure tune. Like you just find a, a tune that's going to cure you of your earworm, and it's going to be death metal baby shark. I feel it. Apparently, there was even some research that chewing gum can help. What can help? I've heard that. Earworm. Yes, wow. I've heard that because it has something to do with the part of the brain that like does the chewing motion. It also is used for like recalling memories. So if you're chewing, then your brain can't also be playing this this melody in your head. Now, full disclosure, I'm not a scientist. Gasp. I know. 
What? I am a music educator for a symphony orchestra, but that sounds intriguing to me. Wow, that is seriously fascinating. Who knew? Chewing gum could get a tune out of your head. Something else you could do is listen to the entire song. A lot of earworms tend to be really short, like it's just one small part of a melody or something. So sometimes if you focus on the entire piece of music or the entire song, it'll help get that offending part out of the way. And guys, I'm sorry, but sometimes you just have to let it go. Let it go, let it go. So now that's stuck in your head again. Most earworms are songs that we like. So sometimes you just have to let it go and enjoy the ride. Well, I'll tell you what, we've talked about Leonard Bernstein a lot today. Stephanie, your obsession with Candide Overture, and we talked about America from West Side Story and how that's a great earworm. But you know, Lenny, of course, had a tremendous knack for writing many catchy tunes himself. However, here on this podcast, Beethoven Walks Into a Bar, we like to dive even deeper into a person's psyche and really get to the good stuff. Of course, that means we want to know what their drink of choice is. Mike, do you have any idea what Lenny liked to drink? Well, uh, we did a deep dive on this, some really serious research, and we managed to uncover something fascinating about Lenny, which is that his drink of choice was a Ballantine's seven year, uh, seventeen year Scotch whiskey, lovely blended whiskey, I believe. Mm. And uh, I would enjoy some of that as well. <laughs> Since we like to talk about Beethoven on this podcast a lot, I think it should also be mentioned that Leonard Bernstein loved Beethoven as as we all do. But he once wrote uh, that I think sums it up really, really nicely. Uh, that no composer has ever lived who speaks so directly to so many people than Beethoven. Mm. And I I just, you know, I think that's so true of just my personal experience with Beethoven's music um, and and just kind of its reach and its accessibility. And and for sure, I, I totally agree with that. Well, to bring this full circle, you know, we are celebrating Beethoven's 250th anniversary and we just celebrated Bernstein's centenary year in 2018. And in celebration of those two uh, milestones, Sony Classical has just re-released Bernstein's first recorded cycle of all nine Beethoven symphonies um, that he made with the New York Phil uh, between 1958 and 1964. And I am excited to listen to these again. I've listened to a few of them, but it's been a while. Um, But I'm going to spend some time this week listening to those initial recordings that Bernstein made of the Beethoven symphonies. One thing you can always count on um, from Bernstein is to have a unique interpretation. And there's so many recordings of the Beethoven symphonies. It'll be interesting to to hear his interpretation of it as a young conductor. I'm excited to listen to that. Do you guys have other uh, recommended listening for the week? I do. Um, So because clearly my brain has an obsession with Candide, uh, and just Bernstein's music in general. I am recommending there's um, an album that includes the Overture to Candide and uh, the Symphonic Dances from West Side Story. Um, it's the New York Phil and Bernstein and uh, just some awesome listening. And if you want really good music stuck in your head, uh, have a listen to this. Well, another uh, big earworm for me when we play it is always uh, pictures at an exhibition. And really the whole piece revolves around this uh, this one theme, this bum, 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 ba-da-dum, ba-da-dum, bum, beam, bum, bum. And it, it always gets stuck in my head. And I think that's why people love the piece so much. 
And uh, I was poking around the interwebs looking for an interesting recording of this. And I actually found uh, a YouTube recording of Evgeny Kissin playing it on the piano in its original version. I think a lot of people may not realize that what we most often hear the symphony play is an orchestration of Mussorgsky's piece that was done by Maurice Ravel, who was an incredible orchestrator, not only of Mussorgsky's music, but of course of his own music. But uh, since we're talking about earworms, to hear this piece distilled down and the colors of the orchestra taken away and just hear its essence on the piano, I think it's, uh, I think it's really incredible, actually. Oh, I'm excited to listen to that. Thanks for finding that. Thanks. And I'm going to go listen to Baby Shark, so <laughs> I, gotta learn. I, gotta, I got some catching up to do. <laughs> well, while uh, Jason goes and listens to Baby Shark, we're going to think about our next episode here at Beethoven Walks Into a Bar. And next week, we're going to be talking about one of the most important parts of any performance, which often takes place weeks, months, or even years before a single note is played. Choosing our music, also known as programming, is one of the most difficult, time-consuming, and yet creative parts of being a musician. So we'll go behind the scenes and try to give you an inside view on how we do this for the entire Kansas City Symphony, for small chamber ensembles, and even for ourselves individually. We'll be joined by Kansas City Symphony's own Evan Hallowen to talk about some of the beautiful programs he's helped to create and what's made them work so well. 